Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. 
That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. One of the, if not the greatest thanksgiving that I have continually in my life is the fact that uh, our four children are in Christ. And before I talk about that today and this month, I, I want to say a personal word of profound love and gratitude to my wife Patricia for sustaining such an unwavering commitment to Christ and to righteous living that was embedded in the life of our children so that they didn't just have a preacher uh, for a father, they had a model for a mother. And uh, in addition to that, people sometimes say, what, what influence was most important on your children? And the answer, of course, is mom and dad. But very close behind that is the impact of so many of you on my children, my grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren, and you touch all of their lives here at Grace Church. So that it's not just what I preach or what Patricia says and does, but it's undergirded by the strength of conviction and Christian life and dedication that the kids grew up seeing and even the great-grandkids are seeing as well. So I'm profoundly grateful. Um, we have navigated the world as parents and grandparents and now great-grandparents, and we have seen the hand of the Lord and seen His grace. And that's very encouraging. I want you to know that because I think there are many who assume that this is an almost impossible task given the world in which we live. Christian parenting, under the influence of the Word of God and godly living, wrapped up in a faithful church, is God's design for raising the next generation to love the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be done. And while there are things that shift and change in the culture, they are all overpowered by God, the living God when we follow His pathway. So this month we want to talk about Scripture with regard to family, and in particular children. I use the title Shade for the Children because five or six years ago I, I gave a series on Shade for the Children. There's a Chinese proverb that says one generation plants the trees, the next generation gets the shade. And every generation should understand the responsibility that they have to plant the trees. So there is shade for the next generation. What we're facing today is um, fierce, I will confess. Of all the things that disturb me in this culture, of all the horrific, sinful, wretched, wicked, corrupt influences that go on in this culture. 
I think the thing that distresses me most is the war on children. This culture is weaponized to destroy children. It's systematically designed to do that. Sixty-two point five million of them have been slaughtered in the womb since Roe versus Wade in the seventies. We all understand the breakdown of the family. If a child can escape abortion and be born, that child has about a 50-50 chance of being born to a married couple. It is likely that that married couple will get a divorce. It is likely that they will be unfaithful to their marital vows. It is likely that the child will be sent to a public school and come under the influence of those whose agenda is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Scripture. And as you know, our country, the politicians who lead it are making laws that are devastating to children under the pressure of sexual freedom, homosexuality, transgenderism. The desire is to make that normal and to punish people who speak against it with laws in the category of hate speech. The lies of systemic racism and the race hustlers dominate the ideologies of universities and even churches. Music producers, movie makers, social media providers, big tech, you name it. They literally pump out things that destroy children. Children are under a relentless assault by all the forces of evil. And they are defenseless. And we have a society and a culture that wants to make sure that these who are pumping out this destruction are free to keep doing it without restraint. Children are defenseless when their parents sell them to a human trafficker who drops them eight to ten feet over a wall into Sodom and Gomorrah all by themselves. Or when the Disney Corporation creates characters that are transgender to seduce children into accepting wickedness as normal. Or when parents insanely offer their children gender identity options. Children are under assault. Now the government wants to even have more influence on them. 
So the president announced that they would like to provide government education free of charge from the age of 3 to 20. You get the picture. From the president and the leading politicians and bureaucrats, teachers, race hustlers, pornographers, media people, tech people, even medical people, children, the most defenseless are under attack. There is a war on children. Now we know that children have some things against them just because they're born from sinful parents. They start out fallen. So their nature is sinful. And we'll say more about that in a moment. But in addition to that, they're born into a world where they have to endure the impact of the sins of their parents. Exodus chapter 20 says, The Lord your God punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In Numbers 14, 18, it says that the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the sons to the third and fourth generation. Jeremiah 32, 17 and 18, Lord, You bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Now, that does not mean that God personally punishes individual children for their parents' sin. In Ezekiel 18, the prophet Ezekiel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says no one is punished for someone else's sins. No one. But what those passages are saying is that the sins collectively of any generation of fathers creates a culture that is the product of that sin that has to be endured by the children born into it. This is axiomatic. Obviously, obviously, whatever is true about a given generation is going to affect the next generation. This is the default reality. Children are born as sinners and they're born into whatever level of sin and corruption their previous generation or generations left them. It's so axiomatic that even ancient literature like Euripides 400 years before Christ said, the gods visit the sins of the fathers on the children. Or Horace in his odes says, for the sins of the fathers, you, though guiltless, must suffer. Or Shakespeare, the merchant of Venice, that famous line where he says the sin of the fathers are to be laid on the children. Everybody gets that. So they come into the world sinful. They come into a world that is defined by the sins of previous generations, and they're going to have to navigate that. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read in verse 9, 
Well, let's go back to verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, as God is saying to the children of Israel as they're ready to go into the promised land after wandering 40 years. And he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. If you hate me, subsequent generations are affected by that hate. Verse 10 says, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There is hope. If you love God and keep His commandments, there is hope in surviving both your own fallenness and the kind of corruption that a child is born into. I want you to turn in your Bible now to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to give you a picture that I think is very instructive and sort of foundational as we talk about this. The children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy are about to enter the promised land. It was a promised land, but it was a pagan land. There were no influences in that land whatsoever when it came to the true and living God. The people of Israel had been taken captive centuries earlier. They now had arrived back at the land. It was occupied, the land of Canaan, by endless tribes of idol worshipers. It was the worst kind of paganism. Immoral, blasphemous paganism totally engulfed by Satan. And when arriving, the children of Israel are instructed concerning some things. If you look at Deuteronomy 6 and see how the chapter begins, this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgment the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that Notice this, your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. You have a responsibility to your children and your grandchildren. And what do you want to teach them? To keep, to fear the Lord your God, to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Lifelong Submission to, obedience to, worship of, love for, fear of God. Verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Do what I just told you. Do everything the Lord commands you to do. Fear Him. Obey Him all your life so that you can pass it on to your children and grandchildren. 
so that you can enjoy the full blessing of the land of milk and honey. Verse 4, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Note that because you're going into paganism with many gods. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. If you want to prosper in the land, if you want to pass on righteousness to the next generation and the next, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And that shows up in obedience. Verse 6, what I'm commanding you shall be in your heart. It starts in the heart with loving God. Then verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, the constant theme of life and conversation inside the home, outside the home, all the time from dawn to dark is the Word of God. The Word of God. You talk about it when you sit in the house when you leave and walk by the way, when you come back and you're ready to lie down at night, and when you rise up in the morning, the conversation is always the same. It is the law of God. The law of God encompassing loving God and obeying God. In verse 8, he says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. The idea there is your hands should operate in response to the law of God. Your mind should be concentrating all the time on God and on His law. That, that is something that was twisted by the rabbis who decided that what that meant was you get a little box and put it on your hand and it's got the Shema in it, another little box on your head with the Shema written and stuffed in the little box. And they went around with what were called phylacteries. That's not the idea. God doesn't want you to wear a box on your head and a box on your arm. He wants your hands to reflect your love for Him and your obedience. He wants your mind to reflect your love and obedience. And then in verse 9, write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So whether you're going out or coming in, the Word of God is everything. Again, if you go to a Jewish home even today, you, you will find Deuteronomy 6, 4-6 to rolled up in a little scroll, stuck in a tiny little box, stuck on the doorposts of every Orthodox Jewish home. It's meaningless to make some kind of object out of it when it's talking about the heart. In other words, your love for God should control you all the time, everywhere in what you think, what you say, and what you do. Then verse 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you didn't build, and houses full of all good things which you didn't fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. In other words, the land is ready for you. You're going to go in and, and we're going to 
we're going to take action against the pagans. Judgment's going to come on them, and you're going to step in and take what they have prepared. But, verse 12 says, watch yourself when it all is there for you, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. God is a jealous God. Back in the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart and with all your soul. We warned them. I'm a jealous God. And when you go into the land and start producing children and children's children and having families and you turn from me and you turn to idols, I will wipe you out. I will wipe you out. Turn to the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges gives us insight into what that first generation did when they went into the land. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. Now their leader is Joshua. And uh, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. So there they are. They're in the land. They've been warned. They have been warned to pass righteousness on to their children and children's children, to love God with all their heart and soul and mind, to obey Him, so notice in verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which He had done for Israel, that first generation that had seen the miracles of the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness and how God provided food and protection and how God allowed them to come into Canaan and how God made the walls of Jericho fall down and they had seen all of that and that generation was faithful. They served the Lord all the days of Joshua and even after his death, all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, that first generation was faithful. Then, verse 8 says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. 
They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation. Oh, here's the next. After them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for Israel. What a disaster not to pass on all of that to the next generation. What a disaster. What a massive failure. So, verse 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. Verse 13, They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Amazing parental failure. Massive. The original people, that first generation, were eyewitnesses of the exodus and the miracle subsequently in the wilderness. And they failed to teach their children. Predictable results is in the verbs in verses 11 to 13. Did evil did evil, served the Baals, forsook the Lord, followed other gods, bowed themselves down to them, provoked the Lord to anger. This is the greatest monumental failure that a generation can make. Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal was called Lord of Heaven, supposedly the son of a god called El. He was the god of rain. He was the god of storm. He is identified as Lord Possessor. He was worshipped, by the way, with animal sacrifice. He was worshipped with certain rituals. He was worshipped with lewd dances. He was, like all deities, seemingly worshipped with sacred prostitutes, both men and women. And supposedly, Ashtaroth, his sister wife, was the goddess of sex and the goddess of war, a prostitute called a holy virgin. That's where they ended up in one generation. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. God judges. When one generation fails, it's responsibility to pass on righteousness to the next. Verses 16 and 17 say, God raised up judges. It was not a monarchy. They weren't national rulers. They were simply deliverers who at different points God raised up to protect the people of Israel from complete oblivion. 
The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, yet they didn't listen to their judges. They played the harlot with other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. One generation. One generation. For 300 years, the judges tried. For 300 years or so, God raised up judges to protect them. The end of the story of the judges is basically chronicled in the final verse. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One generation. And then 300 years, the second generation, the third generation, the fourth generation, the iniquity escalated. It ended up with that freewheeling wickedness that's defined as everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. Back in Deuteronomy 12, verse 8, God had said, and I'm quoting that verse, you shall not do at all what you are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. They were doing it Back in chapter 12, it's chronicled, and for 300 years they kept doing it until it was the defining reality. Forsaking the true God, forsaking the responsibility to pass on the truth about the true God to the next generation, failure to raise children to borrow New Testament language in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the fear of God, is a multi-generational disaster that invites not only the difficulty of the fact that all that are born into it are sinful, that all that are born into it are basically born into a sinful, corrupt culture that's been produced in multiple generations. That is bad enough. It's tough enough. And it invites divine judgment. But I want to add something. Not only were all those children born as sinners and born into idolatry, born into a generations that didn't know God and did what was right in their own eyes, but the culture actually turned on the children. Go back to chapter 12. Deuteronomy. Not Judges. Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28, be careful to listen to all these words which I command you so that it may be well with you. We told them at the beginning. We're back to the beginning. We went to the end and judges were back to the start of their arrival in the land. I command you so that it may be well with you and your sons, your children, after you forever, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. 
when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And here's how bad it gets. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to the gods. What? It's not enough that the child is sinful. It's not enough that the culture has been basically defined by generations of corruption and idolatry. But they actually kill the children. They burn them. In Carthage, one of the places where child sacrifice was done, there were gods depicted made out of some kind of metal. They had their arms like this tilted down a little bit and live babies were placed into their arms just over a fire. And as the fire eventually caused the little one to curl up, he fell through the arms of the bronze idol into the fire as a sacrifice from the parents. When parents ran out of children, they would buy poor children, pay their poor parents for a child to use as a sacrifice. That's what the pagans do. In chapter 18, verse 10, verse 9, first, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to, in, to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. You never offer your children as a sacrifice. Sad to say, when they did get into the land, they were disobedient. And um, they did offer some of their children in the fire. A passage in Ezekiel I think Ezekiel says so much about this that's helpful. He's speaking to the people years after they had been in the land. In Ezekiel 16, there's a lot of places we can look at this, but for time's sake, Ezekiel 16, verse 20. Moreover, here comes the indictment. Moreover, God is speaking in this whole chapter. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you have borne to me. What a statement. You bore them to me. They are mine. And you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered my children. Mark that. 
In the truest sense, your children aren't yours. Whose are they? They're the Lord's. Born to me, you slaughtered my children. Over in verse 36, Thus says the Lord God, because your lewdness was poured out and again these pagan idolatries were all basically built around sex cults. Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols... Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated, and I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. I will judge you like women who commit adultery and or shed blood or judge, and I'll bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy." The children of Israel did the very things that God told them not to do. This is unthinkable. Unthinkable. That they would go so far as to give their own children in a fire. Chapter 20 of Ezekiel. Again, verse 30. Thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? Verse 31, when you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Don't ask me for anything Nothing. You've gone too far to lay any claim on me. Chapter 23 again. Verse 37. They have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols and even caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. In other words, they fed their children to the gods. Again, they have done this to me. Verse 39, they have slaughtered their children for their idols. They entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. They went from sacrificing their children to idols to showing up at my house. Don't, please don't go worship God on the Sabbath if you just offered your children to a God as human sacrifice on Friday. Forsaking the true God and His worship and obedience is a multi-generational disaster. Disaster of massive proportions. 
Child sacrifice is a part of world religious history. All kinds of evidence has been gained by archaeologists. We now know that the Aztecs sacrificed their children every day. The Incas did it regularly. The Mayans did it and believed that the child would exist in some kind of resurrected form. Mass child sacrifice occurs in northern Peru with a tribe called Moque. One of the Andean gods was Ikake. To his honor, children were offered. The Phoenicians on the coast of the land of Israel offered human sacrifice. I mentioned them earlier, the Carthaginians. They know about these idols because they have found evidence of them where the child was placed to slide down into the fire. Plutarch, writing about child sacrifice in Carthage, also said that it was common to buy little ones from the poor and slit their throat before they threw them in the fire. You might be surprised to know the Koran documents that the Arabs were engaged in human sacrifice of children to Allah. All kinds of evidence of this in pre-modern Europe, particularly in southern Africa and Uganda. There's evidence of child cannibalism in, in human history. Recently, we all realized that aborted babies were being dismembered and baby body parts were being sold by Planned Parenthood when it was discovered and chronicled in video. Instead of indicting Planned Parenthood for selling aborted baby parts, the man who took the video was indicted on nine counts. This is a very dangerous place for children. You have about a 50-50 chance to survive the womb. No way to escape judgment. Satan's war starts in the womb and never lets up. It's carried through every medium possible to destroy children. Broken homes, sinful parents, and every electronic form of media, educational system, it's everywhere. Satan's war on children, by the way, is a war on God because the children belong to Him. I want to show you that, so let's close by looking at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I think it's safe to say this, that the Pharisees had no interest in children. 
Apparently, the, their theology of works had basically excluded children since they um, couldn't do righteous works. So they were, they were ignored. But in verse 13 of Mark 10, this is also the same account as in Matthew and Luke, they were bringing children to Him, the people, so that He might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, He was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to Me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoa. What a statement. Truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And He took them in His arms and began blessing them, laying His hands on them. They're His. They belong to the kingdom. And so the king picked them up and blessed them. Just as in Ezekiel. These are my children. To help you with that, Psalm 127. Just a couple of passages are really important. Psalm 127. Verse 3, it's an unqualified statement. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. We'll say more about that in subsequent weeks, but I just want you to notice verse 3. Children are a gift from the Lord. Look at Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down intimately acquainted with all my ways. You know everything about me. Everything about me. How so? Go down to verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to You. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from You when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance when I was just a zygote. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O oh God. You, you wove me in the womb. I belong to you. Psalm 22, 9, David says to God, You brought me forth from the womb. You brought me forth from the womb. Go back to Genesis. And not literally, just thinking in your mind. You don't have time for that. 
from Genesis 4.1, whenever a woman conceived of a child, it was viewed as an act of God. Even in chapter 17, verse 20, a child born to an unbeliever, Ishmael, is a gift from the Lord. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and the Lord enabled her to conceive a son. 1 Samuel 1, 19, 20, Hannah conceived a son from the Lord. All the way through from Genesis, children are from the Lord. Pharisees didn't have any interest in children, their legalistic system. But Jesus did, apparently, and it was not unusual for Him to have parents coming to Him. Back in chapter 9, there are a couple of references to children. Back in 9.36, He took up a child in His arms. Talked about receiving one. Here, some parents bring their children. They just want Jesus to touch them. He healed, by the way, with a touch. So they knew He had power, but the disciples rebuked Him. In Judaism, children were commonly brought for a special blessing on the day before the Day of Atonement. The Jews had always valued the blessing of a father, the blessing of a prophet, the blessing of a rabbi. The Talmud says they brought uh, children to the synagogue for that very purpose as the father had laid his hands on his child's head, he would take him to the elders to have the elders lay their hands on his little head. And one by one, he would ask the elders at the synagogue to bless the child and pray that the child would grow up. And here's a quote from some of their literature. He would grow up famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. Famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. So the people were used to this, but the disciples rebuked them. By the way, these are very small children. While Matthew and Mark use the general term paideia, which means a child, Luke uses brephos, which means a baby, small child. So they were bringing children to him, and that would include the smallest of children. And um, we know they're small because verse 16 says He took them in His arms. The parents wanted Jesus to touch them. A touch of blessing, a touch of prayer. Gave them some hope. This is man of God, this obviously powerful prophet of God, touched their children. Maybe He would bless them with the ultimate eternal life. But the disciples rebuked them. Epitemao is the verb to censure, to reprimand. Literally used for punishment. They exploded against these parents. Verse 14, Jesus saw this and He exploded back. He was angry. They were wrong, and he was angry. You have to understand this wasn't a minor issue. 
he was angry at their indifference toward children and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's an incredible statement. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these? He doesn't say the kingdom of God belongs to these, like these children happen to be elect children. He says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, to this category of humans, this class of beings. These kinds. Matthew says the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. They're gods. He calls them my children in Ezekiel. By the way, nothing is said about the parents' faith. Nothing is said about a covenant, a baptism, a circumcision, a rite, a ritual. If there was ever to be a place to comment on infant baptism, this would have been it. Jesus says absolutely nothing. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these. What? Yes. Little children, before they reach the age where they can believe or reject, belong to God. That means when your little ones arrive, you're stewarding them for God. Are they sinners? Of course. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Of course. Sinfulness is not a condition that comes on people later on. Some people try to teach that, that we're all born neutral and we're sinners because we choose to be sinners. That's absurd on the face of it since that would mean that nobody ever chose not to be. We know they're sinners because that's evident the fact that they die. They all die eventually. Some die in childhood. Some die in the womb. Some die in the very act of birth. But before they're of the age when they can understand their sinfulness and the gospel, they belong to God. And what that means is that when they die, He gathers them to Himself. They're part of His kingdom. I will tell you, this generation of people the leaders, the immoral people that are engaged in this massive assault on children are going to have to answer to God. And that day will come. But what about us? We're going to have to answer to Him too for the little ones He gives us. When they arrive, they're His. And our life commitment is to make sure that as they grow and we influence them, they come to faith in Christ, right? 
That's raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I have four more pages and it's all the best stuff. (laughs) What can I say? Does that mean you're coming back next week? Okay, we're going to pick it up right there. Let's pray. We, we embrace that responsibility, that duty, that privilege, that opportunity of raising these precious little ones that are given to us. Oh, Lord, how I pray that You'll give parents wisdom, that You'll give them grace, that You'll help them to focus their whole lives on passing righteousness to those precious little ones who belong to You. They're Yours. You put them in our hands to steward, to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the Scripture says. We think about all the children that are here in these families gathered today and probably a thousand of them all over this campus and more tonight. Lord, Give wisdom to their parents. May this whole church embrace them and love them and show them what it is to love you. Raise a generation who don't do what's right in their own eyes, but who do what's right in your eyes. That's our prayer. In the Savior's name and for His glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
works are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all to strengthen the global church with the power of God's Word. Is the Bible ambiguous about abortion? Well, sadly, nearly half of self-identified Christians say yes. It's a massive failure on the part of parents and the church that so many believe the Bible is wishy-washy or unclear on the sanctity of every human life, including the unborn. Scripture is not ambiguous. It's abundantly clear, as we'll see all this week. People just either don't know their Bibles, have never been taught to use God's Word as their starting point, or are suppressing the truth. It's clear from both God's Word and science. Abortion causes the death of an unborn child, a person made in God's image, and that's murder. Get equipped to stand for life with answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged in your faith by going to AnswersRadio.com.
Don't just assume. This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a 510-foot-long Noah's Ark. Yesterday we learned that nearly half of professing Christians believe the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. How is there such confusion, especially on a topic that's literally a matter of life and death? Well, it's because by and large the church hasn't taught foundationally, beginning with Genesis. It hasn't been showing that God's Word is the starting point for our thinking in every area. That humans alone are made in the image of God. We're not just animals. That we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God, known before we're even conceived. Killing an unborn child is murder, just as much as killing a toddler. And God's Word is clear on murder. It's sin. Want more answers? Check out our brand new streaming platform when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or share it at AnswersRadio.com.
You shall not murder. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. Nearly half of professing believers in the U.S. think the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. So I'd like to share some very unambiguous Bible verses with them. Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Proverbs 6, The Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. Exodus 20 verse 13, You shall not murder. When the sperm and egg come together, a person is formed with a unique combination of genetic information. Nothing new is added. Everything that makes you is there from that moment. Yes, a fertilized egg is a person made in God's image. And the Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. Get more answers when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Gather round, a brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lessons, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make 
light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs to cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Relative morality? This is Ken Ham, and we produce the unique, family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. Over one-third of professing believers in America say the morality around abortion depends on the circumstance, and that it's acceptable if it spares the mother from financial or emotional hardship. This idea basically says morality changes depending on the situation. But morality isn't based on arbitrary human standards. God creates life. And he has spoken to us authoritatively in his word and said, you shall not murder. Now, the circumstances surrounding conception or the life of a child can be very complicated. But the issue of abortion isn't. It's wrong. And a sin against the creator, the one who fearfully and wonderfully knits us together in his very image. Find answers on our website at AnswersRadio.com or check out our new video streaming service, Answers.tv, when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will.
forgiven now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love. He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad. And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray when we're feeling sad. And when we do bad things, we confess our sins. We can pray all alone or with our friends because of Jesus. Don't stop there. This is Ken Ham, publisher of the popular family magazine called Answers. All this week we've seen the Bible is clear. Abortion is murder. And we need to be teaching this truth. But don't stop there. Show how the gospel even applies. The gospel is hope, peace and forgiveness for those involved with abortion in any way. God promises if we repent and trust in Christ, he removes our sins and he remembers them no more. The gospel is the hope for a culture of death. The bad news is we're all sinners with wicked hearts. The good news is that the gospel changes hearts and lives. It's the gospel that sets us free to love God and others, including speaking boldly and lovingly and providing practical help and hope to those who are in need. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. They love what they believe to be contradictions in the Bible to trip up a Christian who thinks, oh no, the Bible can't be reliable if it has mistakes. Entire books, atheistic websites dedicated 
to presenting what they believe are contradictions in an effort to undermine the veracity of the Bible. There is one word that almost always will clear up any contradictory confusion. Context. 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 Okay, it was the same word, but it was used three times, and it will almost always help you to understand what the author was intending to say, even if it appears to contradict another part of the Bible. A little demonstration will make this clear. If I presented to you a conundrum, some confusion that I have about my mom, <laughs> I don't know if I can trust her. She told me, to wash the floor. My mom also told me to not wash the floor. Can I trust my mother? What would you ask me? Well, slow down there, emotional boy. Uh, did she say anything else when she was talking to you about washing the floor? Are there any details that you're leaving out in this story? Furthermore, when did she first tell you to wash the floor? And then when did she tell you to not wash the floor. Was, was there perhaps any sort of time lag going on there? Because asking those simple questions might just clear up the confusion. Imagine, upon asking me those questions, I said, well, yeah, when she told me to wash the floor, it was 1989, and then in 2007, she told me to not wash the floor. You'd say, well, maybe... There was a different setting, uh, some other things going on that would cause her to say one thing and then another. Furthermore, when you discover uh, that there was a muddy floor that I had actually created when she first told me to wash the floor, and then there was another time I appeared at her house, my shoes were pristine clean, and I offered to wash the floor, and she said, don't wash the floor, you'd go, duh. That clears up the confusion. Ditto with the Bible. When we read this big book, we need to remember context, context, context. Recently went to an atheistic website that presents all kinds of contradictions, like this one. This, oh, this, oh, this one. Oh, the whole of Christendom could come tumbling down on this supposed contradiction. Hey, it said... In the Old Testament, it tells the Jews to get circumcised. And then in Galatians, it says circumcision has no value. See? See, which is it? Clearly, the Bible's a mistake. You should just throw that whole book out. However, when we stop and ask, well, what time was that first statement made? And we realize way over, the Bible's falling apart, way over on this side of the book, God told the Jewish people a long time ago to get circumcised. Then, long time, about 1,500 years later, on this side of the book, a different fellow under a different covenant says there's no value in circumcision. Furthermore, we realize that the original command to get circumcised was under the Mosaic covenant to a particular people group, as a sign of a covenant. It simply identified, marked them as being a part of this set-apart nation. 
However, the book of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul, not by Moses, a different person, different time, under a different covenant, to a different group of people, Jews in the Old Testament, to believers in Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, which tells us um, circumcision, if you think in the book of Galatians to the Judaizers who are saying you've got to get circumcised to be saved, circumcision has no value, you suddenly see, whoa, we are talking about two totally different settings here. In other words, context, context, context clears up any confusion. And that will happen almost every single time an atheist presents to you and, uh-huh, uh-huh, see there, what do you say about that? Now, before we get to what appear to be some confusions or contradictions in the Bible from letters sent to idea at wretched.org, just a little aside for your consideration. What should you do when an atheist, an unbeliever, does the old, aha, what about this contradiction? Might I suggest to you they're not really looking for you to harmonize them for them? I might suggest a couple of options. You could say, friend, if I can explain to you reasonably how these two statements harmonize, would you accept that? and then be willing to say, okay, that isn't genuinely a contradiction in the Bible, most likely they're not going to say, yeah, please let me in, because I'm more than willing to have ears to hear. You could give that a go. It's probably not going to happen, because it reveals that they really don't want to understand the harmony of the Bible. They just want to use it as a card to slap down, to go, just leave me alone. I don't want to deal with this whole Jesus Christ exclusivity and grace alone and faith alone and repentance and faith. I did, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible. However, if you don't choose that route, you could simply point them to websites that deal with all of these contradictions over and over and over again. Or you could share with them books. You could send them all the emails that you want to. But please note, it is a rare occurrence when an atheist will slap down a contradiction because he genuinely wants to believe the Bible. Well, thank you. That was from Wretched, and you can see them on YouTube as Wretched, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and the website Wretched.org. They got podcasts. They got also TV show. So it's a radio and TV show. So check that out, Wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org. And now I got this for you. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on 
on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. And uh, go out with Yancy and friends and the VI release. And bye for now.